Ladies and gentlemen, this one has been a long time coming. Finally, I got my schedule in order to be able to talk to a two-time Stanley Cup champion and Jamie McCowan. Jamie, how's the day treating you today? Well, you know, woke up today. The uh, I live in Calgary. The, uh, the, the smog and, and smoke from the fires out of BC are, uh, looks like it's uh, dissipated. So it's going to be a beautiful day today. Is the sun shining or is it still a little bit hazy? Maybe 10 percent haze, but for a couple of days back, uh, it, it looked like we were in the middle of winter. It looked like we were in the middle of a, of, a, of a Beijing. I mean, I've been there when it's been foggy and and pollution, and you know, here Calgary Calgary prides itself on its blue skies, sort of thing. But uh, sometimes it's out of our control. No, well, with wild wildfires, I mean, it's hard for anyone to control those. I mean. Seeing those roll across, I got to ask the question. I mean, does that ever uh, get into your mind? What if it heads this way, or what if it keeps spreading? Well, you know, where Calgary's located, we're we're pretty safe. We're literally about a hundred kilometers away from the mountains, so um, it had to be one heck of a fire to come <laughs> out up this way. But but you know, when you're in you know Pembroke or or some of those other smaller towns in the middle interior BC. Uh, you know, that's one of those ones where you have to be a little bit more uh, leery of uh, of any of those wildfires. So, I mean, you did play for the Calgary Flames, so i got to ask the question here. Is that what made you want to settle in, uh, in uh, Calgary to live? or? Well, you know what? I, uh, I started in 1983 with Calgary and um, came out of school as a free agent, had opportunities to play with Vancouver and and uh, Winnipeg and the Islanders and a couple others. But uh, I just had a chance to meet Mr. Fletcher, Cliff Fletcher, and uh, and a couple of the guys like uh, Lanny McDonald. And uh, it just seemed like uh, the right place to uh, the right place to come to. And then I, after I, I joined the team, I soon realized that the uh, the way the ownership group in Calgary treated their players was a lot different than many. And uh, I would get invited, for instance, for for uh, a, a barbecue at one of the owners' places in the middle of the uh, in the middle of summer. And uh, you know, Gordon Lightfoot would be there, and he'd be singing songs for the 30 people that were there. And uh, the owners all knew our names; they all knew our wives' names or our parents' names. And uh, it was just a different atmosphere. You really. You really uh, respected the owners. You really respected uh, what they had done. They were all first-generation money. And uh, I think maybe that's the number one reason why so many people uh, have decided to settle in, in the Calgary area. Now, you talk about that, and it sounds like a you know a pretty big family aspect you know that went into the Calgary Flames at that point in time. Do you think that's kind of missing now with some teams where they're owned by corporations or big boards and not one singular entity or maybe a couple of guys who are really passionate about the game? Well, you know what? Um, you know, this is one of the questions that I get asked a lot, uh, not just myself, but some of the other guys that have retired, you know, Joel Otto and Dana Merzen and Colin Patterson and obviously Lanny and who else out there? Uh, uh, Theron Fleury. Uh, Mike Vernon, they all settled here off the 89 team. And um, the reality is, we, as much as we like to believe we know exactly what's going on, we're still we're still like at least one step removed now. But my guess is part of the issue has to be the money. 
Um, you know, when I was playing, I was, you know, getting better every year. And perhaps I was better than some of the players that were getting paid more money than I was. But, you know, the difference was I was making 125, uh, you know, 125,000 and they were making like 145,000. And so I realized if I just worked hard, given another year or two years, I'll be making what they're making or, or better. So there was a real stepping stone in the league, not just in Calgary, but everywhere. Nowadays, you know, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying that's the way it is. Nowadays, you've got a guy who might be turning 21, signing a, a seven or eight year deal for seven or eight million dollars. And, and now you're expecting him to be your leader. Yeah. You know, that's, uh, you know, those leaders don't come along very often. You know, uh, you know, Crosby out of Pittsburgh, uh, you know, I, Iserman, in, you know, when he was with Detroit, Sackick when he was with, uh, you know, uh, you know, Quebec and Colorado, those kind of guys who, who lead by example, maybe a little bit quieter, uh, are generational and they don't happen again. And, so now you've got all these young kids that are making an incredible amount of money. Um, they're making more than, than I made playing 17 years in one year. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and, and I don't begrudge them. I don't begrudge them at all. It's just that it's got to be a totally different mindset now because you're thinking more of yourself because you're your own corporation, right? You are, you're, uh, you know, whatever. Name, name any name you want to name that's a big name now and they are incorporated because if they stay healthy they're making another eight or ten or twelve million dollars so I, th I think the whole atmosphere has changed and uh, that's that might have as much to do with it as the ownership groups well I gotta ask the question I'm a big proponent of this one here I mean there's so many high-end contracts like you just said for the younger players and for me I always looked at it as you know, maybe this is wrong, but I think contracts should be more performance-based. Like, you have a base of maybe a million dollars, and then if you hit 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 goals, whatever, your contract can be whatever, you know, exponentially. I know there's a salary cap to be factored in, but I always thought that, you know, you, you play to what you are, and maybe that would be a better way to do it because then it would be more motivational for some players. And you look at some players over the years, I mean, you throw at Alex Kovalev or Alexander Semin or just a few of those guys that like Phil Kessel that can show up on any given night but take many, many nights off, you know. Maybe that might be that extra little motivation to get them going and keep them going. And like you just said, too, about the leadership, these guys are making so much money that the media and everyone focuses on them that's very hard for a young guy who's 21, 22, 23 to not only focus on his game, but also have to dovetail and take care of the media, the fans, and all the expectations. I, I couldn't imagine. No, no, you're, you're right. And you know what? In a perfect world, and the and the, the present players would be mad at me. Uh, well, not all of them. Some of them would be mad at me. But I, I, I agree. There should be almost like a stepping stone. You know, if you've been in the league for five years or more, then, then you can get to that next level, whatever that is. And um, I think that would, I think that would make a difference. Um, but you know, it, it's 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 tough to it's tough to tell somebody that they're not allowed to make money, especially if they might be the best player on the team. So if that's the ownership's biggest uh, quandary. They 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 you know, like I, all of a sudden, uh, you know, McKin McKinnon out of uh, 
the kid out of Colorado is 21 uh, or 24 or whatever he is at the time, and his contract comes up, and and everybody goes, oh, well, you know what? I'm not going to pay him as much just because we're trying to set the bar. Some other team will come in and say, we'll pay you more. And, and so yeah. for many, many years, the owners have been as much of a problem, if you want to call it, as the players because they're trying to get the very best player or the GM's trying to get the very best player. Uh, and I mean, if every GM had a 10 year contract, uh, then they would make better decisions, but that's not the way it goes. Contracts for GMs are almost as fragile as contracts for coaches. Yeah. You can have a pretty good year, you know, you have a pretty good year, but you're still out. Right. Like, so that's, that's the issue. I look at it like this, and you're right. I would be for the stepping stone, and that would also would help out teams, you know, getting the gauge on players. But i got to ask, you just touched on a little thing there where other GMs will swoop in and, you know, offer sheet or the threat of an offer sheet. Um, do you think those are very prevalent in other GMs' minds every off offseason? Um, you know, you hear the, the media talk about it, like Dreger or Friedman, and they'll say, you know, oh, hey, there's the threat of an offer sheet to Mitch Marner or Matt, this year it's Barzell, um, you know, do you think it's that big of a threat, or is it just something that GMs have a, in their toolkit to drive up the price on guys and hopefully handcuff a team into paying like a Mitch Marner $11 million? Well, I mean, your job is to win. Yep. And if, I, if, I, if I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the GM of Toronto, and I have an opportunity to force uh, the Islanders, for instance, to, to pay $3 million more, per year to somebody that just frees up you know three million dollars more for a Toronto because suddenly uh, the Islanders don't have that availability right they don't yep. have the salary cap so so there's I guarantee you there's a little bit of that going on all the time and uh, more so more so the agents perhaps the agents understand what's going on and um, and, and they're always looking for uh, they're always looking for ways to make their team better and if they can force another team to, to pay more, that allows them more freedom on the next players, right? So Yeah, that's true. Well, you, the salary cap is such a, it's a fickle thing, too. You know, you make one mistake and you're, you're handcuffed to it for however many years. And getting out from under them, we've seen teams have to pay, you know, first-round picks or whatever it was, or good prospects to get away from those deals. So, yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, you also have to be very mindful of what you're doing, I guess, when you're signing those deals. But um, to focus more on you for a second, I mean, just going through everything prep for this episode, you know, being undrafted and coming out of college, I mean, for you, was there ever the thought of, you know, when you're playing in college that you wanted to be drafted or did you have any inkling that you might be and then it just didn't happen? What happened there for you? Well, when I was growing up, um, even though people don't believe it now, I was always a very uh, short-statured person. Um, like, going into grade 11... I was four foot eleven, and I was like ninety five pounds at four foot eleven. You know, and um, so all the way along in my career, I was a pretty good player, maybe in the top one or two on the team or top three in the teams. But especially when we came bantam level and midget level, um, there were players that were fully grown. They were like four or five foot eleven or six foot, and uh, the scouts were always looking at them. Right? They didn't look at me. Luckily for me, I had an opportunity to go to school. I had good grades. And uh, so I just picked a spot and figured it's a great opportunity to learn more about the rest of the world. 
uh, it's a great opportunity to get some free education. And uh, it really wasn't until I got hurt in my second year, right around Christmas, I blew out my knee and uh, had to have full reconstruction. And I had to work out hard to get back ready to play. And even though I worked out a little bit, uh, I was one of these natural people. I stayed the same weight every day, forever, sort of thing. And um, coming out of that uh, that second year, starting my very first year, or my very first uh, game in the in the third year, I was suddenly a new level. I had been, you know, I'd been doing squats and bench press and doing all these things, and I suddenly had gone up whatever. 20, 30, 40% in ability and, uh, and what have you. And well, one of the very first games there, there were scouts there looking for uh, other players. And all of a sudden they went, who's that player? And they said, oh, that guy's he's been around. And uh, suddenly my coach came to me literally at the end of that first weekend and said, give, give me until the Christmas before you leave school. And I'm going like, why, why am I leaving school? Where am I going? Like, what's going on? And he says, all those scouts that were here, they were here to look at these other players. And I, and I threw one of the players through the glass. And they said, they're no longer looking at those players. They're looking at you. And so you definitely have a chance to go to the NHL this year. And uh, then, then, then I realized. So I was, I was actually already 21 years of age. And, uh, and it, you know, about 180 pounds, 185 pounds. And, uh, it was at that point that I realized I had a chance to make the NHL. That is awesome. But you said when we were talking about it before, just before you got in, you said you went with Calgary, obviously, because of the Fletcher and the ownership group and how it was more family. When you're getting wooed by the other teams, was it a surreal feeling, you know, not going to the draft, but then having all these teams kind of clamoring for your talent and to have you on their squad? I mean, everyone had a pitch. Was it a, was it a good feeling almost being paraded around? Yeah, you know what, but it's interesting because even when I did college, uh, my draft uh, uh, selection there, not draft, but my uh, the, the school I was going to go with, you know, you're allowed three weekends to to go out. And each weekend you can see two two different universities. So you can, theoretically, you can see six universities. I went and saw Boston, and then the next time out, I went and saw Ohio State on Thursday, Friday, and then I was supposed to see uh, Bowling Green on Saturday, Sunday. And right, right away, I said, you know what, I want to go to Ohio State. And so with that in mind, um, you know, the same thing kind of happened with, with Calgary. I had some offer sheets come in. Calgary was the first one to, uh, to no, come on, Calgary was the first one to, uh, to show me, uh, like, hey, we're going to fly into St. Louis. We're going to do this and that and the other. And I had a chance to stay over in St. Louis and meet with the guys. And, um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, I met, like I said, I met Al McNeil and Al Coates and, uh, and Cliff Fletcher and, and a bunch of the players. And I decided that night, really, I was going to come to Calgary. And joining Calgary, I mean, you look at the players you got to play with throughout your career in the, with the Calgary Flames. I mean, and that cup team for you, I mean, winning the, the cup with guys like Newmandyke and Theo Fleury and Gary Roberts and Al McKinnis, Mike Vernon, you name it. Um, what made that cup so special for you? I know you won it in the forum, and I did get to see the part, you know, where you talked about winning the cup and, and sharing it with your dad and having that drink. Um, you know, that run must have been magical and, and very special uh, for that team. For you, what 
what do you think went into that season? And how did you guys know that this was going to be the run? Like, did you start to get a feeling? Well, you know what? We had a, a pretty strong year. And, um, you know, I don't know what it was, but uh, some of us thought this was, was going to be Lanny's last year. Um, he hadn't officially announced it. And Lanny was kind of like a father figure to us because even though when he retired he was only 36, uh, our team had so many young guys. We were, you know, we had like seven guys, I think, around, uh, you know, 26, 25 years of age. Uh, so it wasn't a veteran-laden team like some teams. Like, you know, you hear like, oh, everybody's 29, 30, 31, you know, like when Montreal Canadiens were winning. So um, we just thought we, we had the team. Like, and, and, you know, obviously Vancouver played their very best hockey of the year against us that first, first uh, series, and it was close. I mean, we almost didn't get past Vancouver. But, but as soon as we got past Vancouver – uh, then we knew we were going to win. It just uh, the confidence levels just climbed, and even even when we were down two games to one against Montreal, there was no panic. There was nothing. We we knew we were going to win, and um, and and it was just a matter of let's just get it done. And you know, you look at the power on that team. You know, like you said, Newendike and, and Gary Roberts and Joey Mullen and Hawk and Lube, uh, Lanny McDonald. You know, Farron Fleury. I mean, we had guys that are 50 goal scorers. I think we might have set the record for the most 50 goal scorers to ever play on one team. And uh, but you know, the guys that were scoring also were Dougie Gilmore. You know, Dougie. I forgot Dougie. Dougie Gilmore and Colin <laughs> yeah. Patterson and Joel Otto that were that were taking you know 50 percent of all the faceoffs. You know, it's, and then we had Al McInnes. But we had Gary Suter gets hurt like the first game. You know, we, we had we had an all-star lineup that no one really thought about much until we won. And then they realized, oh, okay, I guess this team's a little better than we thought because we played in the West. You know, we're, we're only about, you know, 45 to 50% of our games were televised, and a lot of them didn't go to the East. A lot of teams didn't really know who we were, and more importantly, a lot of fans didn't really know who we were until we won. Well, that's something I want to ask you. I mean, winning the Cup in Canada or with a Canadian team is huge. And, I mean, obviously, the Montreal Canadiens lasted in 93. Then you guys, obviously. Um, how big was it to be that team? And we've seen what happened when Calgary got to the finals already before, when Ottawa was pressing to get there. Um, you know, it, it's big. It's huge. But to actually win the Cup and be on a Canadian team, how big is it? How does it feel? And, I mean, back when you won the Cup the first time, there wasn't all the social media and everything like that, but everybody still gets involved and still gets hyped up. How does that feel to represent Canada as the Cup champions? Well, you know, like yesterday, uh, I still have some uh, issues from playing hockey. I have a bad back and a sore shoulder. So I was, I was getting a massage uh, yesterday from a lady who, I don't know how old she is, but she's probably close to my age, uh, maybe a little bit younger. And she's talking about the 89 Cup, about where she was, what she was doing when we won the Cup, because she was in Calgary, and how she got dressed up and went down to Electric Avenue and, and just just walked around, and, and everybody was so uh, boisterous, but calm, you know, and, and no, no rioting, no damage being done, nothing like that. It was just... Uh, 
it was just like a giant family party and everybody in Calgary was there, right? And everybody was invited. And, uh, and it's amazing how many people still tell me exactly what they were doing and where they were and what, and all that stuff when we won the cup. And they know more about the cup win than we do. Like they'll, they'll ask me questions about it. And I'm, I'm going like, Oh, you know what? I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but they, they remember it. And, uh, I think for many people, especially if it's your hometown winning it, or the team that you you uh, you appreciate and and vote for and support, you you tend to remember everything. And uh, you know, for you know, I don't know what to say other than, uh, like I said, it was it was a great time. It was a great time for me, and uh, and it was a great thing for the city of Calgary. No, it definitely was a great thing for the city of Calgary. And like I said, it was a great thing for all across Canada, having a Canadian Cup champion. Now, you did win the Cup again with the Detroit Red Wings, another stacked-up team with guys like Shanahan and Lidstrom and Yeiserman, Fedorov, you know, Osgood between the pipes. I want to ask this question. I mean, both are obviously special to you, but if you were to take the prime Calgary Flames who won their Cup and then the Detroit Red Wings who won their Cup, both teams that you were a part of, and put them head-to-head in their primes, which one would come out and be the cup champion then? Well, that's a hell of a question. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, they, as you said, they both had a lot of talent. I think, I think overall, I mean, we played, we played. Basically, they were eleven years apart. Those teams. Yep. And uh, and I think Calgary was a little bit physically tougher. They had a bigger team. They had Jim Paplinski. They had uh, Joel Otto. You know, up the middle, they had uh, Timmy Timmy Hunter. Timmy Hunter, obviously, heck of a player. Um, Lindstrom, maybe the best uh, best defenseman out of the group. Uh, Larry Murphy, a hell of a player too. Uh, well, yeah, you know what? Like, you know that could be that could be one of those ones. If you had a seven game series and you and you ran it like five times, one team's winning three times and one team's winning twice. Um, that the the talent was so strong on both teams, and it, it's not very often that you get teams, at least in the last few years, that are that talented. No, well, like I said, the talent through both squads is absolutely astronomical, and the names on them—a lot of Hall of Famers, a lot of superstars—and have gone on to do great things with other teams as well. Another team you did get to play with, and it's a team that we are uh, big on here on this podcast, is the Toronto Maple Leafs. And I just want to ask you, Jamie, when you were there, I mean, obviously everyone in Toronto and then everybody outside of Toronto doesn't like them, but um, for you, when you were with the Maple Leafs, was there? Um, was there a time when you were like, I just want this team to win? Because Toronto fans really want it, and we can be some of the most obnoxious fans there are. But um, I'm wondering for you, during your time with the Toronto Maple Leafs, did it ever get to the point where you're just like, I wish we could break through and get to that next level? Well, clearly when uh, when the, the five-player trade, the five-for-five five happened, um, we were, like Calgary, the guys that were still left in Calgary were shocked at that trade. And um, obviously, Cliff Fletcher. Well, in hindsight, I guess you. I mean, when you're doing any trade, you never know, right? Yeah. But um, but uh, obviously, when I got traded away, I was going like, "Who did I get traded for? Like, <laughs> what? How does this ever make any sense?" And um, uh, you know, very quickly, the Calgary team went downhill, and the Toronto Leafs went uphill. And uh, the next two full years were there. We were in the semifinals. 
both with opportunities, with a little bit of luck and, and a few less injuries, you know, we're making it into the finals. And uh, I think the one that hurts the most is the L.A. one. Yeah. Uh, a couple players a couple players in L.A. played very well. But, you know, and, and you know, Fraser, you know, probably he's probably more as, as well known for the, the call and the non-call as he is in anything else. Because he calls Glenn Anderson on a five-minute and an expulsion when I don't think they're being a penalty all game. And then, you know, we now know that we're going to be shorthanded for five straight minutes. And then the Gretzky incident happens, and he, and he doesn't make the call. So, like, if Gretzky's out of the game, well, I mean, you never know. We, we think we're winning the game, yeah. and we're off to the finals to play Montreal. So, for a lot of people, including myself, I think that's the one that probably rubs me the worst is the fact that we had a good team. We Guys were playing with injuries. It was a tough series back then, a tough tough league back then, and uh, different guys having to get needles and get shot up in order to play. But to have that kind of taken away from you, because when Game 7 came along, you know, some of our guys' injuries were just, uh, you know, we were just worn down, and we, we needed that one or two days off to get ready to play for Montreal, against Montreal. Yeah, we all know that call, the non-call, and it's just, even as a young fan, because that's really when my fandom started at its full peak, that was uh, the thing that you just couldn't believe, that you thought something was going to change, or they were going to call it, or they were going to do something, but nothing happened, and you're just left with your jaw on the floor, and I can't imagine being a player in that instance, basically having it almost taken away from you. Um, I want to ask the question, you know, Toronto fans want to know this. I know that you probably don't have a huge crystal ball on this, but what do they need to do to get things back on track in Toronto to get themselves beyond round one and to have success? Because it seems like for whatever reason, no matter the talent they bring in and the goaltender between the pipes or the coach behind the bench, it's not working. And we talked about it with uh, Calgary and how they treated everyone like a family. What needs to kind of happen for the Maple Leafs to get to that level? Well... You know, speaking as an outsider now, because it's been a lot of years since I've been in Toronto. Yep. Um, the number one issue, and no disrespect, but the number one issue in Toronto has always been the same. Um, the fans are great, right? The fans that attend the games are great. The support we get is incredible. Um, but the reporters are the biggest anchor there, uh, and and it's the reason being is. Um, you know, like, for instance, I'll give you an example. When Calgary won the Cup, we had two reporters uh, that followed the team all the time. They were they were the you know, the Calgary Herald, the Calgary Sun. And those guys tra- traveled on our on our buses. They traveled on our our, uh, our planes. And they were well-liked guys. And the and the other reporters that would come in, they knew there was a certain amount of respect. You don't you treat the team fairly. And uh, Mr. 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 Fletcher and the ownership group was respected. And so, if somebody needed to be moved, if some trade needed to be happened, you didn't just blast it all over the the papers and the newspapers. It was it was kind of a, more of a subtle thing, where they they used to say like, if you if you were to change things, what would you do? Well, you know, you got a great player in Gary Roberts, but if we traded Gary Roberts. They might get this player or that player back. Um, it wasn't the negativity that happens now. And I understand why it happens, 
when you've got 60 or 70 or 80 reporters in Toronto, yeah. all trying to be listened to, all trying to be read in the papers and stuff, uh, if you just do nice stories, you're, people don't pay as much attention anymore to nice stories. They pay attention to the crap. They pay attention to the to the Cardassian stories, yeah. right? Like the juice, off, you know, yeah. You know, and uh, and Toronto, more so than Montreal, but Toronto for sure is probably the number one team in the NHL for reporting. They they get the most uh, attention. They get the most negative stories. And so uh, a guy like Matthews, for instance, or Anderson, or whoever you're talking about now, you know, they're 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 people. I mean, as much I even though they're making big money now, they're still people. They they still have the fragile human mind. And when you're hearing, you know, you have a bad day or a couple bad days, um, and suddenly the the press is just just crazy on you about how terrible you are. Maybe he's not working out enough. Maybe he's uh, uh, maybe he's out of shape. Maybe he's drinking too much. Maybe he's what, what you name it, whatever he's doing. Um, and and ninety nine percent of the time, it's not true. It's not true at all. It's just simply the fact that hockey is a game where it bounces right, and sometimes it bounces wrong. Yeah. You know, people people forget when when Calgary Flames went to the finals against Montreal in nineteen eighty six. We had 11-game losing streak. 11 games we lost in a row. And uh, and you go, like, how did you make it to the finals when you lose 11 in a row? It's like, well, because the, the team understood that for whatever reason we were getting bad bounces, a couple players were in a funk, and we just worked our way through it. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, time to destroy the team and, and tear it apart and, and all that stuff. We, we, we just simply... Uh, carried on, and um, you know that's the, that's like I said, it's maybe not what you want to hear, but that is for sure the number one issue in Toronto. No, you know what? We actually just did a roundtable um, the other day, and the biggest thing we talked about was the media was harping on guys right after games and just always trying to get that juicy quote or that juicy line out of them, just so you have something Kardashian esque to put up. And you know, I think the biggest thing nowadays is guys need to find a way to tune all that out and just play the game and, and stay away from the media. And I liked it when Lou Lamorella was in town. He kind of kept all the younger guys away from the media, allowed the seasoned guys to answer the questions. It wasn't the guys the reporters wanted, but the team seemed to flourish a little bit because they kind of sheltered those younger guys and they didn't have to face those questions and they didn't have to face the, the media. And, you know, everything was kind of kept under wraps. And I agree with you. I 100% think the media is a huge problem and it's because... All the biggest stations are right there. You have TSN, Sportsnet, CBC. They're all right there. Everybody's in-house, so you get all the biggest names covering the team daily. And it, Yeah, it can definitely boat anchor them and drag them down, and that's a huge thing, and I, I think you're 100% correct. Yeah, you know, I, mean, I mean, like other sports, like golf, you hear about guys getting the yips and stuff, and it's like, or in tennis, suddenly they go from ranking number one down to number 60 or something. Well, they haven't lost their talent. No, it's just it's just no. sometimes sometimes it's a mental game, and uh, especially nowadays where it's not you can't run around and, and just drop your gloves and get get yourself going by having a fight or or knock five guys through the boards. Nowadays, it's so much talent, and they call every penalty, even penalties that shouldn't be called. So um, it's 
really more of a mind game now than it's ever been. So, you know, uh, and you know what? You got guys like, well, I'm not even going to mention their names because I, I despise them. But there was guys that are still in the Toronto media that were there when I was there, and they were just nothing but crap people. I mean, literally, I use stronger language. But they would they would act one way at home, and they 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 act another way when they were on the road. They were they were people that I wouldn't stop. Literally, I wouldn't stop to help them if they got run over by a car. Because I that's how much I hate them. Because I don't think they're good people, and they were willing to they were willing to sacrifice players and their players' families' well being for their own benefit. Oh, and, uh, I, I know a couple of those that come to mind for the team, so I can, I can only imagine who you're thinking of. Well, you know what? Like I said, I'm not even gonna give. I'm not gonna give my the 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 respect of even mentioning their name. Nope. Because mm-hmm. literally, I I have I have nothing but. Uh, well, I you know, I don't have the pl- property put in in a polite way. Like I said, I think I I, I think I put it strong enough. Oh yes. I, I don't think yeah. they're good people. I think they're bad people, actually, and um, and uh, the fact of the matter is, you're not dealing with 55 and 60 year old men that have 30 years experience. Oftentimes, you're dealing with a 19 year old or a 20 year old, and um, you know, think of yourself when you were 19 or 20. Yep. You know, it's uh, it's a tough it's a tough goal, especially when you've got you know, eight million people in Ontario watching every move that you make. Yeah, and you got a camera shoved in your face for most of it because no matter what you do now, even the sites like TMZ or whatever, they're all over you too. They want to get that juicy quote because you play for the Toronto Maple Leafs, which is the, as we already said it, the heavily covered team, so everybody wants their piece of the pie. But, uh, Jamie, I know that you uh, you have something to get to here, and I want to thank you very much for taking the time. And I want to do an, uh, an open invite to come back on because I know there's many more stories to uh, to drum out and have some more fun with this. Well, you tell me if if, if, the, if the, the ratings aren't too bad, I'd love to come back. <laughs> the ratings will definitely not be bad, my friend, and I, I super appreciate it, sir, for you taking the time. All right, not a problem. Take care. Take care. So as you heard, that was former Toronto Maple Leaf, former Calgary Flame, former Detroit Red Wing, and two-time Cup champion Jamie McCowan sitting down talking about the teams he played for, the Cup wins, the different contracts, and at the end there, a little bit of point of words towards the media and a few members that he still has a little bit of harbor of hate to. All right, that was Offside for today because this is Offside Hockey Talk where hockey comes to talk.